what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Imagine that I had a set of instructions for making $1 million. My instructions fit on a single sheet of paper, font size 12, double-spaced, no funny business. Don't you think we should maybe ask for more than a million dollars? Just follow every step to the letter and a million bucks would be yours. A million dollars isn't exactly a lot of money these days. What would you be willing to pay for access to that document? $1,000? $10,000? $100,000? More? You'd probably be willing to pay whatever you had in your bank account, or you might max out your credit cards, because you'd know that no matter what you pay, you would make more by following the instructions on that sheet of paper. Now, I'm not sure who I heard this little capitalist parable from, but it was one of the first explanations of the value of information that really stuck with me. We're used to figuring out the value of things based on their size, materials, and quality. But how do you wrap your head around selling a digital product, an ebook, or an online course for more than your first car cost? This scenario is designed to prove the value of knowledge. No matter how few words or digital pages it might take up, It helps you make sense of how something that seems so insignificant in material terms could be so life-changing in real terms. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Of course, this scenario, the million-dollar instructions, is impossible. There's more to making lots of money than can ever fit on a single sheet of paper. And even if you could generate a no-fail set of instructions, you could never anticipate all the intangibles that allow knowledge to convert into currency. And yet, this explanation has provided the basis for hundreds or thousands of proprietors of knowledge to charge exorbitant fees for little more than a set of instructions. Today, we're talking about the economics of information. Because if information wants to be free, why is it so damn expensive? First, we'll dive into some historical and ideological context, examining the origin of the phrase, information wants to be free. We'll talk about how the concept of money itself plays into how we value information. From there, we'll dig into this week's case study from my own history as an information marketer of sorts. I'll compare and contrast the higher-priced business coaching program I ran for five years with the low-priced business classes I taught at Creative Live. And finally, I'll present an alternative theory of value of information products, courtesy of feminist economics. All right, we've got a lot to cover today, so strap in and enjoy the ride. At a hackers conference in 1984, in conversation with Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, 
a man named Stuart Brand uttered the phrase, information wants to be free. He actually said something a little different and said quite a bit more than that, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, let's just think on that phrase. Information wants to be free. Today, we carry around access to a vast amount of information in our pockets. But information wasn't always so easy to access. Before the internet became ubiquitous, families might have bought the Encyclopedia Britannica as a home reference. In 1985, the encyclopedia would set you back, at the low end, about $1,200. That's $3,500 adjusted for inflation. A lot of money for information that would be outdated from the moment it crossed your threshold. But that's nothing compared to the relative cost of information before the invention of the printing press and movable type. Before Gutenberg's invention, books were copied by hand. Books and knowledge generally were the purview of the super elite. So it does seem that information has become cheaper and cheaper over time. Free, as a financial cost, is only one way to look at that phrase. Information wants to be free can also mean that information wants to be liberated, to flow freely, to be unregulated. Either way, information being free is a blow to those who profit from information. The people who are managing expensive information are going to be continually feeling undermined. By information coming along, they feel is directly competitive and has this unfair price, from their standpoint, of free. And there's people are finding ever more ways to casually create, distribute, consume information in this uh, relatively free fashion. And that brings us back to the rest of what Brand said. Here's what Brand actually said in 1984. Quote, Information sort of wants to be expensive because it is so valuable. The right information in the right place just changes your life. On the other hand, information almost wants to be free because the cost of getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two things fighting against each other. End quote. And uh, you can say it's all going to be free. No, it isn't. You can say it's all going to be expensive. No, it isn't. Now, Brand did not originate these ideas. But his innovation, if you can call it that, was making the concept of information a subjective force. Information wants to be free. Information wants to be expensive. But information is not a subjective force. It doesn't want anything. And this really matters. It matters because who is actually doing the wanting here? Who wants information to be free? Well. Consumers, the citizenry, the public. And who wants information to be expensive? Well, many of Brand's most high-profile friends. The information product that Stuart Brand put on the map was the Whole Earth Catalog, first published in 1968. The Whole Earth Catalog was a compendium of product reviews, excerpts, and images. Open the catalog's cover and you'll find a statement of purpose that reads, 
We are as gods and might as well get used to it. A realm of intimate personal power is developing. Power of the individual to conduct his own education, find his own inspiration, shape his own environment, and share his adventure with whoever is interested. Tools that aid this process are sought and promoted by the Whole Earth Catalog. Now, if that sounds at once both Crunchy Hippie and Atlas Shrugged, well, that was by design. This juxtaposition of the counterculture aesthetic with an ethic of rugged individualism eventually became known as the Californian ideology. And I'm sure we'll eventually get around to doing a whole episode on that, so I'll spare you the details now. But suffice it to say that Brand and the vaguely countercultural billionaires who sought him out are a key influence on the creative, consumptive, and disruptive culture that's defined the last few decades. The writer Malcolm Harris described Brand on the Tech Won't Save Us podcast. Stewart is sort of this underachieving younger son of this rich merchant family going back generations to the Western timber boom. And so they're pushing that money forward. Stewart could go to his dad and say, you know, you're worried about what kind of capitalist I'm becoming that I'm out here with these smelly hippie people. But actually, a lot of them are much squarer than you'd think. And there's this is a growth industry. You know, this is California mid-century. Stuff's booming out here. You can really make some money. And he was. And so he was showing the connection between the counterculture and capitalist logic that was maintained throughout the whole time. He could have been the paragon of a different kind of capitalism, but now when you're aligned with Jeff Bezos, you're just capitalism. The Whole Earth Catalog took the most superficial values of a particular segment of the counterculture and turned them into a product to be sold. It was a symbol of counterculture, entrenched in the values of, well, consumer culture. Owning the Whole Earth Catalog made you feel subversive, even when you benefited from immense privilege and profited from the early Silicon Valley boom times. The Whole Earth Catalog typified Brand's characterization of the tension between information being free and information being expensive. Brand borrowed heavily from the books and products the catalog reviewed. Flip through its pages on the Internet Archive, and you'll find page after page where the vast majority of the content is not an original review, but excerpts and diagrams copied straight from the works featured. He was perfectly happy to take others' work for free and incorporate it into a product he sold at a premium. In a 2022 book review for The Nation, Malcolm Harris described Brand this way, quote, At one point in time, it was possible to see Brand as the goofy grandfather of a gentler, more thoughtful capitalism headquartered in the San Francisco Bay Area. Decentralized, but still ambitious, environmentally conscious, and techno-optimist, philosophical, and even spiritual, rather than materialistic and stultified. Despite his continued influence in Silicon Valley, New York, and Washington today, 
It's much easier to see Brand as Harris does, a huckster, adept at using his family's money to put himself in rooms with people who were hell-bent on making billions, while billing themselves as humanity's great white hope. I see many similarities between the Whole Earth Catalog and the current information marketing milieu, and I'll get to those toward the end of the episode. But first, let's consider the role money plays in how we value information. So how do you put a price on information? Well, it can help to consider what a price really is in the first place. And to do that, we need to consider the role currency plays in how we arrive at a price. So money, as currency, is a way of describing the relative value of two unrelated things. So we might be able to say that three apples are worth about the same as, say, three pears. They're both fruits of similar size and nutrition. But it's much harder to compare the value of my waterproof wool sneakers to my bright turquoise KitchenAid mixer. They're made of completely different materials, and I use them in completely different ways. But I can say that my sneakers cost about $100, and my mixer cost about $300. Now, I have a way to describe their value relative to the other, if there was ever some weird occasion to do that. In this way, money is a lot like a system of measurement. There are many ways to communicate my height, for instance. I could say that I'm just over half the height of a basketball hoop, or that I'm as tall as a stack of 44 hardcover books. But that's not really helpful, because you might not have a visual reference for the height of a basketball hoop, and you don't have the same stack of 44 books that I have. That's why we have a system of measurement that we can all agree on. I'm just about 5 feet 5 inches tall. Or, put another more popular way, 1.65 meters tall. Now, we're on the same page. Okay, so currency allows us to compare the value of two unrelated things, and price is a way to denote the value of one of those things for the purpose of exchange. The seller wants to maximize the money they make by finding the highest price that maximizes the number of people who will agree to part with whatever unrelated thing they happen to associate with that price. To put a price on information, the seller must consider what the potential buyer is willing to part with to attain that knowledge. And to decide a price for information is acceptable, the buyer must consider whether the benefit of attaining the knowledge is worth what they have to give up to get it. Sounds like opportunity cost, right? Now let's revisit the example we started out with. The one-page document with clear instructions on how to make $1 million. In terms of use value, instructions for making $1 million are worth, well, $1 million. But in terms of exchange value, those instructions will fetch a far lower price. And that's because there is additional work required to attain the $1 million. The buyer understands they'll have to implement the instructions to actually attain the $1 million. 
And since that labor is transferred from seller to buyer, the price of the instructions goes down. The buyer also understands the potential for stress and uncertainty that comes along with following the instructions. Plus, acting on the instructions might take a toll on the buyer's relationships or peace of mind. And then the buyer must also weigh how much time it would take to produce those instructions for themselves. Now that is a long list of considerations. What's more, every potential buyer will see those considerations through a different lens. And this, frankly, is why pricing information is just so damn difficult. Because that's just the buyer's side of the equation. Now the seller, well, the seller considers the amount of time they spend learning the information they're now selling, the chance it will work the way they say it will, the care with which they've communicated the information, and more. But those things only matter in as much as they are relevant to what the buyer gains by buying. It doesn't matter if the seller spent a decade learning what they know, if the buyer could now learn that information in six months of sleuthing. It doesn't matter if the seller used this information to accomplish a great feat, if the buyer can't reproduce it. It doesn't matter if the seller has put great care into communicating the information, if the buyer's learning style or neurotype doesn't work with that form of communication. So to go back to Brand's statement, sellers want information to be expensive because they're invested in what it took to produce that information. And buyers want information to be cheap or free because there are far too many variables to consider when it comes to the value of information. It's almost like information isn't really a commodity at all. And yet, Online courses, learning communities, reports, and other forms of information products are big business. Ironically, most people get rich selling information by giving information away for free. And this makes me wonder if maybe it's not information being sold at all. I've sold many different types of information products over the last 14 years. Ebooks, templates, written courses, video courses, live courses, coaching programs, and subscriptions. But I want to focus on the startling difference in price between the courses I've taught on Creative Live and the cost of the business coaching program I once offered called Quiet Power Strategy. Between 2013 and 2022, I taught 15 courses of varying length and scope on the Creative Live platform. The first 12 of those courses were taught live in front of a studio audience and were broadcast free of charge to thousands of live viewers. The last three, which I recorded in June 2022, were taught direct to camera. Creative Live packaged each of the courses as individual products available for $49 up to $149 or through their Creator Pass subscription for $149 per year. Now, making these courses was not a small thing. In 2014, I taught a bootcamp class that took five full days of filming and produced more than 30 hours of content. 
most of the classes clock in around 12 to 18 hours of content. And on top of filming, of course, I had to develop each class and produce a slide deck and workbook. I typically developed classes over 12 weeks or so. I'd spend about a full work week to produce the slide deck I used that often topped more than 300 slides. In other words, I put a ton of labor time into each course, and I gave up the chance to pursue other revenue opportunities during that time. Now, ultimately, I made much less money as a creator teaching for Creative Live than I would have had I taught those classes on my own. However, using the Creative Live platform to teach eliminated a lot of the stress I felt teaching on my own. So the price of those courses and the revenue share I earned from them made a lot of sense to me at the time. On the other hand, in 2013, I started offering a business coaching program that would eventually be called Quiet Power Strategy. The first couple of times I ran the program, it cost about $1,500, if I remember correctly. It was four months long and included recorded audio modules, worksheets, asynchronous personal feedback, and Q&A sessions. It was a hybrid coaching program and cohort-based course before hybrid coaching programs and cohort-based courses became trendy information product styles. Eventually, the program grew and the price went up. I think the last time I ran it in its original form, the price was $3,500. Now, that's a steal for business coaching, but pretty pricey for an online course in 2016. By then, I could enroll 40 to 50 business owners and split them up into small groups facilitated by trained coaches. It was still a very hands-on program relative to what others offered, but I didn't have to be the only one with my hands on it. Today, there are many changes I'd make to how Quiet Power Strategies client experience and learning environment worked. I've learned a lot, but I very much still stand by the framework and the importance of interactive small group learning. Both my Creative Live courses and Quiet Power Strategy were information products of sorts. And there was significant overlap between the information I shared in both. So why the giant disparity in price? Why did Quiet Power Strategy cost 24 to 70 times more than my Creative Live courses? The answer might seem obvious. Quiet Power Strategy came with coaching and feedback that I couldn't deliver in a Creative Live course. One type of product had interactive support mechanisms built in, and the other did not. Creative Live courses can be inexpensive because they externalize labor onto the customer, while Quiet Power Strategy retained more of the cost of labor within the product delivery. In other words, if you want me to do more of the work, you have to pay me more. But if you're willing to do more of the work, you can pay less. So where does that leave us on the value of information? Well, it means that the value of information is relatively slight. What is much more valuable is the labor involved in supporting clients. Again, that might seem obvious, but the implications of it probably aren't. In the online business and side hustle world, information products have been sold as the key to passive income. 
sell your time, the gurus tell us. Package up that information and put a price tag on it. Working for your money is for suckers. And while there's been a small shift on this front in recent years, service-based businesses can seem like the also-rans of entrepreneurship and independent work. They're a stepping stone to the bigger profit and higher profile a passive income products-based business can generate. Services are stigmatized because they are feminized. A service-based business is a care-based business to one extent or another. Information products are services with the care work removed, automated, or embedded within them. The care work, to the extent that it's there at all, is often de-emphasized or made invisible. Now, feminist economists make this same critique of the gig economy, social media companies, and any corporate strategies that promote outsourcing care work to underpaid, precarious workers who are more likely than not women, immigrants, people of color, disabled people, and or queer people. So how do information products de-emphasize or remove the care work that is central to how they work? When we compare the once-and-done unsupported knowledge product with the supportive interactive knowledge product, it's easy to see the value of the latter. Most often, this value is attributed to the results, as in, courses with support are more valuable because participants get better results. And certainly, that is true most of the time. But Assigning the value to the results makes it easy to ignore the value of the labor that goes into those results. Students do tend to get better results when instructors customize a curriculum for the cohort they're teaching, provide feedback on students' work, and create a classroom environment that encourages active participation. It's the difference between trying to learn calculus by reading a book on calculus and sitting in a classroom with a good calculus teacher. The latter is infinitely more valuable to most people. A teacher can't force anyone to learn, but they can seriously increase the odds that students will learn. This form of care work is critical to the value of high-end information products. And care work in the knowledge economy should be compensated well, whether that's the care of a passive information product that is regularly updated, the care of a live workshop where a teacher is answering questions and holding space for real-time learning, or a hands-on group coaching program that requires hours of additional labor outside of the Zoom room. But economically speaking, our society loves to erase care work. Consider the GDP, gross domestic product. It's the big number we use to measure the health and growth of the overall economy of a nation. In the U.S., child care, elder care, housework, and other forms of care work are not counted if that labor is done for one's own use. Now, if you send your kids to daycare, hire someone to clean your house, or outsource the care of your elderly parent to a home health care worker— That is counted in the GDP. But the relative value of those services is always compared to the quote-unquote free option. 
And so both in real compensation and in relative status, those jobs rank extremely low. Here's economist Jayati Ghosh explaining further how unpaid care work is erased from GDP. Clearly, unpaid labor is a huge subsidy to the recognized economy and the formal sector. Okay, So you have these estimates of productivity, for example, which are based on GDP per worker. Now, of course, there's a lot of issues with all of these things, right? We know that GDP itself, the gross domestic product, is a problematic concept. We know that there are all kinds of things it leaves out, all kinds of things it brings in, uh, which we may or may not value as societies. But now we even know that the denominator is a problem. The worker part, we are not really counting all the workers because we're not counting all of the women who are doing the unpaid work or sometimes men who are doing all this unpaid work as well. So when you get increases in productivity, that is GDP per worker, and you say, what a great economy and so on, it could be for all the wrong reasons. It could be because there's an increase in unpaid work, as has happened in India over the last 20 years. One of the things about social reproduction, if you want to call it that, or care activities, the whole bundle of things which involves looking after the young, especially, but also the old, the sick, the differently abled, those who cannot look after themselves for in different ways. Societies have to create uh, some situation in which care activities are performed, whatever else happens. It's something that creates a kind of tension between what you could call individual welfare and group welfare. Because the care of others is not the care of yourself. It is, in a sense, something which is against your own welfare if you're going to spend time caring for others. So this gender construction has been extremely useful in resolving that tension. We know that care work in an information product is valuable in the same way we know that care work in a household is important. We miss it if it's not there. Actually, we don't just miss it. Things often don't function without that care work. And yet, it is barely, if at all, valued financially. It's not a coincidence that today we might outsource care work to gig workers. We might ask a DoorDasher to pick up lunch, or we'll hire an Instacart shopper to select and deliver our groceries. Or we might even hire a TaskRabbit worker to wrap gifts, clean up after a party, or even assemble toys. And yes, I got those examples straight from the TaskRabbit website. Except we don't think about the person, the gig worker we're hiring. We think about the app. We don't hire an Instacart shopper. We use the app and wait for our groceries to arrive. These companies have used technology and marketing to figure out how to profit from hiding care work. We don't think about how these companies exploit the people who do the work because we don't think about those people as workers at all, if we even think of them as people. Worker? What worker? Now, when it comes to information products, this plays out in a number of ways. First, if we acknowledge the value of the care work that makes an information product valuable, we might create a container for the information product and set a price that clarifies that value. This is what I did as best I could at the time with the Quiet Power Strategy Business Coaching Program. 
Now, another way this might play out is that we recognize that we want to minimize the care work involved with an information product, allowing the customer to take on that responsibility and set a much lower price that takes that risk into account. And this is how a low price model like my Creative Live classes work. Both of those models are effective and they're relatively fair as long as they're priced appropriately, workers are compensated correctly, and customers are informed about what's on the menu and what's not in terms of care. Now, those are big ifs, of course. But another way I see this play out with information products is to ignore the care work altogether to ignore the invaluable contribution of the community managers, virtual assistants, or junior coaches who make this stuff work, to ignore the massive risk that a customer takes on when they buy a self-paced course or sign up for a subscription. Care work becomes another mundane task to make more efficient or to automate outright. Fewer and fewer resources are dedicated to care, even as profits soar. The information product creator is able to tell a tale of mind-blowing results and the potential for life-changing transformation in the same way that Stuart Brand told a tale of personal empowerment through individual action. The price is high, and so is the burden to the consumer. The price is high, and the probability of success is low, low, low. The price is high, and the revenue flows disproportionately to the creator rather than the care workers who make it possible. There is simply not enough care embedded in the product to justify the price or the promise. In this scenario, the information product creator, like brand, sees their status rise to new heights. They're a hero, not merely another coach, consultant, or teacher. They're a visionary, not someone you could hope to have access to, let alone receive care from. In the last few years, I watched as more and more information marketers seemed to take a step in the direction of care work. They talked about building communities, enlisting other coaches who could offer hands-on help, or launching cohort-based courses. Some of this was a genuine shift in the direction of program integrity. Quite a bit of this quote-unquote new trend was simply adopting the language of care work without actually investing in care work, just as Stuart Brand adopted the language of counterculture without investing in organizing or collective action. Information products are a drop in the bucket of the knowledge economy. But whether we're talking about online courses, data brokers, consulting firms, or digital publishing, we must remember that information isn't actually what's being sold. What's being sold is care. And that care is either done well, done poorly, or merely gestured at for marketing purposes. Knowing the difference helps us become better creators, consumers, and care providers. Next week, we'll dig into the economics of hiring help. 
We'll consider how existing structures and incentive systems shape the way we think about the profit we create and the people we pay. And I'll talk to friend of the pod, Kate Strathman, about whether it's possible to hire others at all without exploiting them. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. Today's music is from Track Club. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. Mm-hmm.